0: 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kula Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to Elders past and present of the Kula Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast.
1: Oh, Automotive news, analysis That's and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to eight thirty am
2: Double.
1: Wrap your <laughs> baby,
3: baby. Good morning and welcome to Tuesday Breakfast. Today is Tuesday the 7th of February and it is 7am and you are joined in the studio today with me Carnegie and Fung and shortly Jasmine. Good morning. morning, how are you Fung?
0: I'm great, yeah. Not... Totally stoked on the weather at the moment, no. but but still pretty good. Yeah. Mm.
3: Weather is deplorable.
0: <laughs> Although it's supposed to warm up tomorrow. Hopefully.
3: Yeah. I'm not ready for summer to end.
0: No. It's like we barely had it. Exactly. Yeah. I want it to stretch out yeah, exactly. for the appropriate amount of time. <laughs> That's right. And then we can slide straight into autumn.
3: Yeah. Yes, exactly right. Um, did you do anything exciting over the weekend?
0: Um, Over the weekend, well, um, on Friday night, (laughs) we went to see some cool live music, didn't we? We did. Um, Shout out to um, Sweet Merchie and the Thursday Breakfast team for that. Yeah, if any of our listeners are interested in
3: um, 90s Bollywood DJing, Sweet Mochi is where it's at.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, Aside from that, though, pretty... Pretty low-key. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Me too. I feel like um, I had two nights out in a row and that absolutely wrecked me for the rest of the weekend. Oh,
0: yeah. Then you just need to recover. Exactly. I feel like you've done your part.
3: Exactly right. All right. Well, um, let's go through what's coming up on today's show.
0: Yeah, so we're going to start today's show by revisiting the webinar webinar. Are We Sleeping Into War?, which took place in September last year. Dr. Sue Warham spoke um, as part of that event, and we're going to play that um, just before we speak to Elise West. Both Elise and Dr. Sue Warham are from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. and, um, And so in this segment, Sue talks about the... Disastrous Impacts of Warfare on Our Health, as well as the media's biased reporting on China. And then after that, when we speak with Elise, uh, we'll be talking about their upcoming campaigns for 2023, talking about their priorities um, in the first part of the year, including marking the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq, uh, the AUKUS report, and Australia's military emissions. So that's 7.15 and 7.30.
3: And then at 7.45, uh, to mark the International Day of Zero Tolerance for Female Genital Mutilation or Circumcision, um, also known as cutting, we'll be listening to a clip from a podcast by Netfa. Um, As we said in our show last week, we will be playing clips from this podcast over the next few weeks um, to mark this day. So um, the clip today will be uh, a conversation between Lara-Christina Cruz and Dr. Vina Barsiwal. And then at 8 o'clock, we'll be listening to an interview with Samantha from the Pame Language School um, that Jasmine did earlier in the week. So very excited about that. And um, then to finish off the show, we'll be speaking with artist Chen Shin, who has a show opening at First Grey Community Arts next week. Um... She's an artist from Shanghai, and her show explores uh, really, really interesting things um, through the absurdities of everyday life. Excited for today's show, and we will be right back after this.
4: Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up, be heard, call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter.
1: Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children aged 3 and 4 can access 15 hours per week of free kindergarten. In a kinder program, children learn through play, art, music, and dance. Qualified teachers create culturally safe places for Aboriginal children and families. Kurri Kids Shine at Kindergarten. Find out more at fic.gov.au forward slash Kurri Kids Shine. Authorised by the Victorian
5: Government, Melbourne.
0: A 3CR supporter.
3: You're on Tuesday Breakfast and these are our news headlines for this morning.
0: As Carnegie mentioned earlier, yesterday the 6th of February marked the international... Uh, Day of Zero Tolerance for FGMC and to mark that day uh, the Multicultural Centre for Women's Health as well as the National Education Toolkit for FGMC Awareness um, collaborated with 3CR to produce a podcast series to shine a light on this issue and how it impacts lots of different communities here. In so-called Australia, so we just wanted to remind everyone that that podcast is um, going to be played uh, here on 3CR. Uh, We'll be listening to a part of it today, and if you'd like to know more about Netfa and their work, you can go to netfa.com.au.
3: Some news from Finland. Um, Finland has just made it much easier for people to legally change their gender and have that recognised. A newly passed law means that transgender adults can now do so by self-declaration without any excessive red tape or invasive medical or psychiatric procedures. After many years of campaigning and pressure from rights groups, Finnish Prime Minister Sana Marin made the law a priority for her government. It was passed on Wednesday by a large majority in Parliament, 113 votes for and 69 against. Um, It's been hailed by Amnesty International as a major victory for equality that will have huge and positive impacts.
0: Uh, In other news, I'm sure a lot of people have read about this already, but um, there were two deadly earthquakes that struck Turkey and Syria yesterday and um, they marked... uh, It was marked around 7.6 and 7.8 magnitude on the Richter scale. Um, So... Being some of the most powerful earthquakes in the region in at least a century, and uh, the current death toll is um, is around 2,600. So, just um, yeah, keeping an eye on what's happening in Turkey and Syria at the moment.
3: Um, back to local news. I'm sure everybody has seen the big news from yesterday that Senator Lydia Thorpe has quit the federal Greens after failing to find common ground with her party on a voice to Parliament. Um, She has said that this country has a strong grassroots black sovereign movement full of staunch and committed warriors and that she wants to represent that movement fully. Um, She also said that it's become clear to her that she can't do this from within the Greens and is looking forward to being able to speak freely on all issues from a sovereign perspective without being constrained by portfolios and agreed party positions. Senator Thorpe has been a vocal opponent of the proposed voice and was one of the Indigenous representatives to walk out of talks that led to the Uluru Statement from the Heart.
0: Um, Just a, a reminder or just a notice for anyone who's available today who's interested in attending, there is a rally that is going to be taking place outside Victorian Parliament on Spring Street from 10am to 11.30am, campaigning for the government to stop uh, native forest logging. Um, here in 3CR, we've covered this issue a lot across numerous shows, um, and so if you would like to join um, community groups such as Gecko, Friends of the Earth, King Lake, Friends of the Forest, wombat Action Group, um, and to send the government a message about that does last such impacts of of logging in this country, then uh, please attend the rally. That's today outside Victoria Parliament, from ten a.m. to eleven thirty a.m.
3: Um, another issue that we have been following closely here on three CR is uh, the changes, the proposed changes to Victoria's bail laws. Um, it has been decided that the coroner, after the coroner's um, blistering findings into the passing of Veronica Nelson. In Dame Phyllis Frost Centre Prison, um, politicians have committed to fixing Victoria's broken bail laws. Uh, This is, of course, still subject to, you know, scrutiny and pressure from the general public. So um, if you did want to read the recommendations by Val's and other experts, they have created a list of recommendations for the reforms, which you can read on the VALS website, vals.org.au. And they do have a template there if you wanted to email um, the Premier um, to make sure that these changes do do happen. Um, And for the final headline this morning, I just want to let our listeners know that Uh, On Sunday, the 12th of February, 3CR's queer programs will broadcast out of the studios and onto the streets for 3CR Victoria's Pride Street Party broadcast, 12 to 4 p.m. Um, It'll be live from Smith Street, so tune in to hear interviews, commentary, and stories presented by broadcasters from Out of the Pan, In Your Face, and Queering the Air on topics that focus on queer pride, representation, decriminalization of homosexuality, and ongoing advocacy. Um, if you want more information, head to 3 We'll be right back with a track for you after this. So here you are, too foreign for home, too
6: foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijoma Umbinio, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Ayan every Monday at 2.30pm on 3CR Community I Radio.
7: It would to
0: be free. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Dr. Sue Warram is one of the founding members of ICANN and is also the president of MAPW or the Medical Association for Prevention of War. Uh, and she spoke at the webinar uh, in September 2022 called Are We Sleep Walking Into War? And that was a collaboration between MAPW and the People's Health Movement of Southeast Asia Pacific. In this segment, Dr. Sue Warram talks about the biased reporting in the media about China um, in this country, as well as the disastrous impacts of warfare on our health. And we wanted to play this uh, before our upcoming interview with Elise West, where we talk more about um, some of the issues that are impacting us when it comes to uh, health and war in this country.
4: I'm speaking from the lands of the Ngunnawal and Gambri people in what is now called Canberra. Um, and pay respects to the traditional all the traditional owners of the lands in Australia and I speak in full awareness of the the fact that my country Australia is a big part of the problem that we are uh, facing having been complicit in just about every united uh, modern U.S. war Uh, Paul, you've given an outline of what MAPW, Medical Association for Prevention of War, does. The name more or less uh, gives away why we exist. Um, We have a particular focus on nuclear weapons, uh, which you mentioned. The talking up of war with China has become very loud in Australia we seem to have much more alarmist statements here about china than there are in countries that are much closer to china we see a total marginalizing of non-violent ways to reduce tensions and we hear constant references in our media to chinese aggression and chinese assertiveness while as has been pointed out our media generally ignore the fact that the US spends uh, more on its military than the next nine biggest spenders combined. So we we hear very biased interpretations here. So what's the role of health professionals and health advocates in all of this? Well, I think one role for us is to continue to point out that war is a health disaster and a war between two between two uh, military giants, one much more gigantic than the other, but two military giants, nevertheless, such a war should be unthinkable. And the fact that the US and China are both nuclear armed takes the risk to a totally different level. We're all aware, I'm sure, that a nuclear war could begin by intention or by accident, and it would probably be terminal for big chunks of the planet. Recent updates of nuclear winter research uh, confirm reports and uh, add, add to reports that in the aftermath of a nuclear war, the nuclear winter effect would cause um, famine, basically famine for billions of people because of blocking of sunlight, reduction of rain, crop failures, etc. Now, in a just world, just and sensible world, all of this would be sufficient to make our leaders step back and say, war must not go ahead, Um, we need to find other ways. But we know that uh, evidence is not sufficient to bring about good policy. Tragically, So we we must do more. One of the ways that I think health professionals and others can approach this problem is to try to undermine the war machine itself, the networks, the institutions, the corporations that need war for their existence and the institutions that tell us that there is no other way. We need to, I think, take away the social licence of the war profiteers, the companies that can't survive without war and tensions. In Australia, um, we see that the, this is an issue that MAPW has worked on. The weapons industry um, has spread itself right through our education system. Uh, with the, uh, particularly at universities, but also down to primary school level with the explicit goal of attracting the best science, technology, engineering and math students, the explicit goal of attracting those students to the weapons industry. So we need to uh, absolutely need to undermine this. MAPW has a report which um, some might be interested in called Minors, M-I-N-O-R-S, Minors and Missiles, um, which gives gives an outline of this problem and it's uh, it's on our website. MAPW is working to change policies that allow these vested interests uh, in our schools. The weapons industry, as you mentioned, Paul, also helps to fund um, think tanks which are telling us that um, war is coming, there is no other way. And we, uh, there's no, no point opposing that. Um, and a particular problem in this respect is ASFI, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, which plays a key role in advising government on defence and security matters and in recent times has become almost hysterical in its warmongering towards China. ASPE also receives significant funding from the US State Department and the US Defence Department uh, and appears to be almost a mouthpiece for those um, institutions. MAPW is planning research to look at this particular problem. I won't say more about that now in the interest of time. Talking about war has a number of dangers and not, uh, not only the intended result of making us believe that there is no other way, war is inevitable. One of the dangers is an impact which is already occurring and that is the impact on Chinese Australians as they start to feel a bit less welcome in this country and increasingly under scrutiny and suspicion about where their loyalties actually lie. But it is not all bleak in Australia. Um, We, as most of you will be aware, certainly the Australians, we have a new government since May, we have a Labor government, which on some fronts is more progressive. They. Have given us more hope of perhaps reigning in this militarism a little, but unfortunately on that front uh, the hopes have not been fulfilled. We have the we still have the very destabilising and provocative AUKUS agreement. AUKUS being Australia, the UK, and the United States, which was negotiated by the previous government. Um, but the Labor government um, still is, uh, gives no, no intention at all of rethinking, uh, renego- renegotiating. So with the three AUKUS countries, three Anglo nations uh, starting to in, um, encircle even more than previously, encircle China. Um, It's really hard not to see this in racist terms. We hear a lot about the rule of law in relation to AUKUS, but AUKUS is about US supremacy. That's what it's about. Now, of, um, of all the elements of AUKUS, there are a lot of military initiatives in it. Of all the elements, the most provocative and the most controversial is the proposal for nuclear-powered submarines for Australia. This proposal has big challenges. It might not ever come off. There are key questions about where the submarines would be built, where their home ports would be. There's uh, there's also an absolutely eye-watering economic cost of probably in excess of $170 billion. Um, and there's the nuclear weapons proliferation risk. Now, in relation to where the submarines might have a home base, Australians have traditionally, for very good reason, as Dr. Honda has reminded us, for very good reason, has reject, Australians generally reject having a nuclear reactor in their backyard. The submarine proposal is deeply unpopular with a lot of people, and it's probably the best campaign target for those of us who want to undermine the AUKUS proposal. The submarine proposal is probably the best place to focus our efforts. We need to challenge the secrecy around it. We've been told virtually nothing about AUKUS, uh, despite its huge implications So we need to challenge the secrecy, the risks associated with it, and we need to undermine public trust at every level in the AUKUS agreement. I'm just going to say a wee bit more about um, the nuclear war risks, and I want to again promote the only thing that is leading us towards a nuclear weapons-free world, and that is the Treaty on the Prohibition of nuclear weapons, which you mentioned, Paul, which prohibits all aspects of nuclear weapons, development, testing, production, assistance, everything else associated with them. And it's the only agreement that does that. The ban treaty, as we call it, now has 68 states parties. It's part of international humanitarian law. And there are an additional 23 countries that have signed, but not yet ratified. earlier i said that governments tend not to pay sufficient heed to the health implications of war when it comes to nuclear weapons that's actually not so much the case it was the health and humanitarian impacts of nuclear weapons that um, which are so overwhelming um, that most governments realize that these weapons must never be used And those impacts were the driving force for the achievement of the Ban Treaty, and they remain its very foundation. So I think as health professionals and health advocates, we have a huge continuing role um, in promoting the treaty to all the governments that are not yet party to it. And certainly that remains, as you mentioned, Paul, a goal for us in Australia, to ensure that the Australian government, the the Labor government, fulfills its promise to sign and ratify the treaty. Before finishing, I think I'm probably over time, I'm sorry. Um, I just want to mention briefly another aspect of militarism, which I think is very useful for us to focus on because it links the peace movements and the environmental movements. And that's the greenhouse gas emissions from military activity. These emissions are huge and they are currently exempt from mandatory reporting under the UN framework on climate change. Um, so this must change. We need to ensure that military greenhouse gas emissions are both counted counted and recorded and that they are reduced. And this uh, agenda also is one that MAPCA will be uh, pushing, especially over the next couple of months before the next conference of parties to the uh, UN Climate Change Framework, which will be in November. So uh, I'll I'll finish off. I just want to repeat that um, the health-related... Um, re- repeat that the health-related links... Be- sorry, links between peace and health in our region are extremely important right now. And dialogues like this one are very valuable. And to whatever extent we can, I think we need to extend these dialogues. If we can include health um, professionals and advocates in China, despite the great difficulties in doing that, then so much the better. We really need to normalize the process of talking about peace and the inextricable links between peace and health.
0: That was Dr. Sue Warham from ICANN and MAPW speaking at the webinar called Are We Sleepwalking Into War, which took place on the 28th of September 2022. Uh, Stay tuned after this next song where we'll be speaking to Elise West from MAPW about um, other issues that are impacting us today
3: next up we're going to play uh, a new song by pop queen peach prc um this one is called perfect for you and it samples one of my favorite historical pop songs which is stars are blind by paris hilton um and it's off peach's new ep releasing in april this year baby i'm perfect for for you by
0: PHPRC. The Medical Association for Prevention of War, or MAPW, is a professional non-for-profit organisation that works to promote peace and disarmament. MAPW aims to reduce the physical and psychological impact as well as environmental effect of wars throughout the world. Elise West is Executive Officer at MAPW and joins us on this morning's show to talk about what's coming up for the organisation in 2023. In particular, we'll be discussing the 20th anniversary of the Iraq invasion, the AUCA submarine report, and Australia's military emissions. Welcome back to 3CR Breakfast, Elise. Hello,
6: good morning. Thanks for
0: having me. Uh, It's great to have you on the show again, um, and especially today to talk about 2023, because it's going to be another big year for... MAPW. M- um, let's start with next month uh, where it will be the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq. Um, can you tell us more about um, what discussions you'll be having at MAPW about this um, significant anniversary?
6: Well, it is it's significant and a pretty ignoble anniversary as well. It is 20 years since the invasion on March 19, uh, 2003. Um, this The chaos and crisis in Iraq lasted until the withdrawal of US troops in 2011. Um, Iraq was a total disaster. It was a humanitarian, legal, political and strategic disaster that's had overwhelming effects on ordinary Iraqi people that continue to this day. It was a war based on lies, um, on a claim that Iraq possessed weapons of mass destruction. um, And no one's ever been held accountable or the fact that the, the war was begun um, on misinformation, Australia was a really enthusiastic participant in the war. Um, it was one of the first countries to voluntarily commit troops, and you know it has become clear over time that the decision to commit Australia to war was taken primarily with a view to enhancing our alliance with the United States. Um, we'll be focusing on the ongoing consequences for the the health of. Iraqi people. Back in November 2002, so even before the war began, um, we were part of a global effort to um, bring attention to the predicted health and humanitarian consequences of the war for the Iraqi people. Um, we should note that Iraq's healthcare infrastructure was already devastated from sanctions imposed after the 1990 Gulf War and, really, and very important health indicators like infant mortality and nutrition showed a population that was already in crisis. Um, Based on the um, existing um, health indicators and predictions about the conduct of the war, we warned that um, there would be extremely high rates of civilian mortality and morbidity, excess death, especially in children under five, mass displacement, um, huge consequences for public health infrastructure like water, food and energy resources lack of access to medical treatment, um, epidemic disease and widespread environmental devastation. And, you know, it gives us no pleasure to have been correct about um, many of those things. Um, The war further devastated the the health system in Iraq and by 2008, just to give an indication of the extent of the devastation, reports were indicating that most primary healthcare centres in Iraq did not have basic equipment. And when I say basic, I mean water and electricity to provide care for people. Um, those effects continue today. As I mentioned, at the start of 2022, Iraq still has about between 2.2 and 2.5 million people in need of humanitarian assistance. Um, many of those are internally displaced, not just because of, um, you know, that, that 2003 invasion, but because of the chaos and um, social instability and the inability to reconstruct iraq that's followed on um, from that Um, we think that's an absolute tragedy and as i mentioned no one has ever been held accountable um, for the effects on the iraqi people Um, we'd like to see some form of recognition in parliament of australia's decision to go to war and the um, the ongoing effects Australian people. We'll, we'll see how we go with that. <laughs> we think it's unlikely that the um, Australian Parliament will uh, be able to rouse itself to, to acknowledge the past. Um, we, so about 10 years Ago, we were part of a group of organisations that um, launched a campaign for an inquiry into Australia's decision to go to war. And from that, um, we've sort of focused on a, on a key issue, which is war powers reform, which is the, the method by which Australia decides to go to war. At the moment, the executive, so the, the PM, Um, can decide to take Australia to war without any debate with the parliament or discussion with the Australian people. We think that's a really enduring lesson of um, the invasion of Iraq, that that needs to change. So we'll be focusing again on that in 2023. Um, There's going to be uh, an action on the 18th of March in the State Library that's organised by the Independent Peaceful um, Australian Network and, and Allies. To, to mark the, the
0: war and to um, insist that that never occur again yeah um, that's you listed so many disastrous impacts of that of that um, aggressive invasion of Iraq and um, yeah it's interesting you know that you know it might not be possible for the government to acknowledge um, Australia's involvement in that uh, and, you know, it, it. that sort of tracks with uh, the government's, I guess, um, I guess it's not, that's not new, you know, in terms of not being able to acknowledge things truthfully, um, things that have yeah. happened in the past. Yeah. Um, well, perhaps we can get you back on the show um, in March to, to talk about um, this anniversary in more detail, because I think it deserves its own um, segment there. Um,
6: yeah, I think, you know, there'll be uh, – I expect there'll be quite a bit of coverage in the media and it'll be interesting to see to what extent it, it really gets at the heart of the, of the problem.
0: Yeah, and, um, you know, just before uh, this, we, we heard from uh, Dr. Sue Warren, who who spoke at the um, Are We Sleeping Sleepwalking Into War uh, webinar last year, and, and she mentioned, you know, the media bias um, talking about China. So it'll be interesting to see how the media uh, – talks about this anniversary um, leading up to next month. Um, So I I wanted to touch on um, the MAPW's report um, exposing military emissions in this country. Um, And so I'm reading this next bit from your report. It says, in Australia, no defence emissions data has been made public since 2012 and reporting uh, on energy use has been incomplete in the period between 2001 and 2012, Defence was responsible for 66% of total Australian government emissions, and this does not take into account military supply chains, a source of um, considerable embedded carbon emissions. Um, So, therefore, the Defence's total contribution to emissions is probably much higher and to have increased significantly since 2012. Um, What work is MAPW doing to um, put pressure on the government to release this information?
6: All right, so we would like Australia to commit to improved measurement reporting and scrutiny of defence emissions, um, include defence emissions from all sources in its overall calculations of Australia's emissions. Now, this is really, really important because although um, militaries are enormous sources of emissions, as you say, um, defence is the single highest public sector emitter, military emissions are excluded from calculations of state's overall total emissions, and that is also at the international level as well. So in terms of um, reporting to the, um, to the UN, for example, um, reporting on military emissions is voluntary and excluded from total. So unless we actually consider military emissions, we really are not getting the full picture of what a state's total emissions are. And to give you a sense of why that's important, if the world's military were a single entity or a, or a country, it would be the fourth largest emitter. So you'd have China, USA, India, then militaries. So without action on military emissions globally, because all solutions to greenhouse gas emissions have to be global solutions, uh, it's much less likely that we can limit global temperature um, rise the 1.5 degrees that's specified in the Paris Agreement, but it's also critical to, to human um, survival. So our first ask is that the military make public its emissions data since 2012. We we can't see it. We can't find it. Um, we put in an FOI request and we told it was, it was going to be too difficult. So uh, we're still trying to sniff that out. The Australian Defence Force says it has initiated a range of investments to drive a reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. But unless it's counting the emissions, how do we know if it's reducing its emissions? So transparency is really important. Um, we'd also love to see environmental groups take up the issue of defence emissions. Um, As I said, this is like, it's referred to as the emissions gap. It's this massive source of emissions that we really have very little understanding of. So for environmental groups, get in touch. Uh, We'd love to see groups take up this issue um, of uh, defence emissions. But also, um, crucially, the issue is not just decarbonisation. So decarbonisation alone is not enough to decrease military emissions, given that they're so high. But also, um, the The real goal here is demilitarisation. So demilitarisation reduces emissions but also has incredible benefits um, on on other fronts as well. So firstly, it enables the kind of global cooperation that we need to tackle the climate crisis but also um, allows resources to be diverted to sort of more more fruitful um, ends. Um, And, you know, it also um, enables um, us to, you know... We of talk about just and rapid transitions or systemic change and demilitarisation I think is a really, really important part of that um, transformational systemic change we we need to um, address the climate
0: crisis. Yeah, definitely. And as we've talked about um, with you before on this show and as we've heard um, from from advocates from MAPW and elsewhere, um, demilitarisation... Will have such a positive impact on everything from, you know, um, being able to, like you said, collaborate with with other countries on different issues, improve healthcare um, dramatically, have a you know, positive impact on the environment. Um, literally, it's linked to so many benefits. That's right. Um, well, yeah, we'll we'll also be um, getting in contact with you to to keep us updated on this issue um, and finally as we wrap up Elise can you tell us what updates um, you have about orcas and what's to come in the next few months
6: all right so in March we're all eagerly awaiting the report of the Australian government's um, nuclear subs task force task force report this is meant to be a report that sets out the so-called optimal pathway for Australia's acquisition of naval nuclear reactors and um, it's all very uh, secretive. We don't know if we're going to be seeing the full report in March. The latest information that we have is that it's going to be, quote, truly trilateral, so possibly involving um, the UK and the US in the build of these um, nuclear-powered submarines. Um, I mean, unless there's some magic involved in the report, uh, I'm not quite sure how this is going to proceed in an orderly fashion Um, in both the US and the UK shipyards. There are long-standing problems with materials, um, skill shortages, delays, maintenance problems you may have seen just last week um, the british navy ordered an investigation after it was discovered that broken bolts in a nuclear submarine had been fixed with super glue <laughs> so hopefully the the australian nuclear sub task force can find a way around around that um AUKUS is is um, is a bit of a mess it seems so far to be completely circumventing australia's established treaty making process um in, Normally in Australia, treaties come before joint standing committees to be considered by the parliament and scrutinised by the public but we continue to get these piecemeal developments that don't seem to be adding up into a coherent big picture. Mm. So we'll be waiting to see what the task force comes up with.
0: Yeah, and I guess that's a good reminder for everyone to put pressure on their governments for transparency across all issues um, but especially talking about AUKUS and and military missions. Um, I'm sorry to to have to end our um, time with you here, Elise, but um, this is all that we um, have time for this morning. But we would love to have you back on the show next month. It seems like March is going to be quite a busy month for you at MAPW. um, But thank you so much for joining us uh, on the show today to to give us some updates about what's in store for for the organisation in 2023. Thanks so much for
6: having me. See you next
0: time. Uh, That was Elise West from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. If you would like to know more about MAPW's current and upcoming campaigns, please visit their website, uh, www.mapw.org.au.
6: Everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in.
4: For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3 CR supporter.
2: Welcome
3: back to 3CI Tuesday Breakfast. We're going to jump into our next clip, uh, which, as we said both last week and at the start of this show is from a podcast um, that Tricia has done in collaboration with the Multicultural Women's Network Um, it is to mark the international day of zero tolerance for female genital mutilation the clip today is a conversation between the leadership program participant um, Lara Christina Cruz who is interviewing Dr. Veena Barsiwal a doctor and counsellor Um, They speak about the importance of bodily autonomy, bodily integrity, and its relevance to the practice of FGM. It is um, a bit of a heavy uh, content, so just a content warning for our listeners that this clip will um, be talking about FGM. So if that is something you don't necessarily want to listen to this morning, um, please tune back in in about 10 minutes.
6: Hello and welcome to the NetFab podcast. This podcast contains important stories and conversations about female genital mutilation, circumcision or cutting. Some listeners may find this triggering. Support is available on the NETFA website. Please go to netfa.com.au or contact the Multicultural Centre for Women's Health on free call 1 800 656
2: 421. (laughs)
8: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Owning My Body for Podcast. My name is Lara Cruz. I'm a participant of NAFTA Leadership Program. NAFTA stands for National Education Toolkit for Female Genital Mutilation Cutting Awareness. I would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land where I'm recording today the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay respect to their elders, past, present, and future. Today, uh, in our podcast, we will talk about bodily autonomy, mental health, and fem- female genital mutilation circumcision or cutting that is called, uh, shortly known as FGMC. And our guest today is Vina Barsewell. Dr. Tina Varswal is a medical doctor who is into counseling because of her determination to try and to try and empower her clients to lead a more productive and fulfilling life, to bring forth the message about health uh, entailing physical, mental and social well being. She believes that mental health is crucial in leading a fulfilling life socially and physically. Her self coined water is the joy of living through the joy of loving. She has been a volunteer support youth facilitator with Anxiety Recovery Center of Victoria for the last five years and with Shakti Migrant and Refugee Women Support Group, Melbourne Inc., for the last four years. It has given her an immense satisfaction to empower women facing domestic violence and help them rebuild their lives. And it has been a very challenging yet uh, equally satisfying field for her. Also, uh, she holds workshops on various mental health topics such as depression, anxiety, stress, self-esteem, assertiveness, to name a few. She has produced podcasts for the Ingentle Link. Radio at, uh, Addressing the Topics of Healthy Relationships. She has coined a counseling modality called VAV, which is Voice, Actualize, and Balance, to help people find solutions to their issues. And she, she, she is an active member of Santa International Club, which is a global service organization of executives and professionals working together to empower women through service and advocacy. And she is currently writing a self-help, book titled The Fifth Language. Uh, This is uh, a book about uh, a language uh, common to all human beings and her childhood dream is to positively impact millions and millions around the world. So let's give uh, a big round of applause to Vina, Dr. Vina Barciwal.
9: Thank you, Lara, for that introduction.
8: Thank you, Vina, for being here today. I know it's a bit short notice. Thank you so much for your time. No problem. Um, Today we will talk about bodily autonomy, mental health, and FGMC. I would like to ask you you a few questions. My first question, Vina, is um, what do you think is the importance of bodily autonomy and why it is important to practice bodily autonomy
9: or bodily integrity, as they call it? Okay, so bodily autonomy. Yes. Uh, to answer that question, I'll begin with like a sort of question, like what does it mean? What does mm. bodily autonomy mean? That is the first mm. question, because yeah. uh, it is often misunderstood and misinterpreted. Mm. So let's. I'll I'll try to explain in two ways. Like one, let's mm-hmm. take the best case scenario. So it bodily autonomy means my body is for me it is mine mm-hmm. so which when i hear that or when i say that it it, it is it relates to power and uh, we know that with power comes responsibility so which yes. means that when it comes to responsibility i will be cautious about what choices i make
2: mm-hmm.
9: right so automatically i will be, be- making better choices uh And when I say better choices, I mean healthier choices, not only physically, but healthier Mm -hmm. as in life choices, so which would lead to a life of dignity. Correct. And uh, so if I have better control over my actions, Mm -hmm. then automatically there are consequences. Mm. And uh, so what am I moving towards? I'm working towards realizing my full potential. That's, That's what the whole thing looks like. And once that happens, it would positively impact upon the community, upon the country, upon the whole world in turn, isn't it?
8: Yes, that's true.
9: So, And it's related to self-esteem, as we know, mm-hmm. and uh, which again is related to the quality of life. Now, mm-hmm. let's look at the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario is, let's forget about the full potential, about working towards the full potential totally. Here, mm-hmm. we are looking at a girl who is who is being married at 13 years of age, 14 years of mm-hmm. age. Or we are looking at uh, a woman who has, you know, there's a law. Legally, she has to seek permission to use contraceptive, her husband's permission
2: to mm-hmm. use
9: contraceptives. Or she has to uh, face marital rape mm-hmm. because there's no safety for her there or she has to uh, suffer unplanned pregnancy when i say suffer it's because maybe mentally she's not prepared maybe uh, physically she's not prepared maybe she's just had a baby maybe she mm-hmm. is not healthy enough so uh, this this would lead to physical problems as well as yes. mental problems isn't it yes and correct then uh, of course as you mentioned about female genital mutilation In itself, Mm -hmm. yes, we can make out that that in itself uh, is something traumatic to undergo. So, so these these are this is the other side of what not having uh, bodily autonomy can look like. So Mm -hmm. that person is in a toxic relationship. So, what does Mm -hmm. toxic relationship lead to? We know that very well. It leads to mental suffering. Mm -hmm. So yeah I guess we'll stop there
2: <laughs> mm-hmm.
9: thank you so much for uh Veena,
8: for that uh, uh extensive uh explanation of bodily autonomy and my next question is um if if there's uh someone or uh some people might uh experience it uh our listeners must ex might might experience this like how can we say no to our family members or elders if they want to do something in our bodies like how to question refuse or argue to them
9: okay so you know lara and you might agree with me that there's no easy or straightforward answer to that one right yes correct <laughs> no here is very uh, is difficult to say yes we mm-hmm. have to acknowledge that because because that's the truth mm-hmm. and um uh, Here, in this case, saying no is a process. That's Mm -hmm. how I see it.
2: Mm -hmm.
9: And the people in question here, for whom you're asking, they need to become part of that process. Uh, When I say process, I mean that the social and gender norms are so deeply rooted that they will not change overnight. And we all are aware of that. Having said that, a lot has changed in the last few decades. We cannot say that it hasn't. It has. Right. So right. Uh, so the way I would put it is that we need to normalize. And normalization, normalizing would happen over a period of time. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, I'm coming back to that. Uh, how to question, refuse, or argue about that would depend upon how this person, how they see themselves in the context. Mm-hmm. in that family so because it is it is it depends from person to person how they can talk in within yes. the family right so yes. uh, it it has to be uh, uh, their own sense of identity which will enable them to ask the right questions to challenge and
2: mm-hmm.
9: argue about it so mm-hmm. so they are there because they are in that situation. they are the best judge to to make out what what can I ask and how can I ask it, and why mm-hmm. do I want to ask it? Yes. so for example, let's look at um uh, asking the let's say asking the family members or elders, whosoever is there, uh who are you afraid of if you don't do this to me? Mm-hmm. Why are you afraid? What will happen if you don't force me to do this? What about me? My thoughts? My feelings? Mm-hmm. So yes. th- instead of being um, aggressive, these are the questions which they can uh, uh, put forth. And uh-uh. uh, all I can say and hope is that when you put a, put a thought, a question in front of someone, it can uh, stimulate uh, a thought. Mm-hmm. And a thought is something really strong. And... Uh, like we say that the uh, most powerful thing you can give somebody is a thought so what i mean is that once you put up that idea it can even stimulate um, and shift mindset yes and uh, because these these girls these these young people don't have the power to do it on their own they are not in a position to do it on their own uh, another thing which i mm-hmm. quickly bring to your notice is that grassroots organizations yes uh, they have a big role in this to bringing about that social change because that has to happen simultaneously so mm-hmm. asking questions of the kind that i've said and uh, um yeah that, that that could be helpful
8: yes i think yeah uh, asking questions and have that understanding yeah and reflection what is what it is like to live up uh, to your family's ex- expectations to you and how does it conflict with your own values, identity, or self sense of self? For example, um, uh, we are here in Australia, but some people would say, like, my mom is uh, raising me like we're in the Philippines that I should do this and I should be this, but uh, that's not my goal or my value or identity
9: or, yeah.
8: So what it's like to to, to manage those expectations. Family expectations.
9: Uh, yeah. Okay. Lara, even for this, uh, you know, the, the even the expectations, the family expectations mm-hmm. might mm-hmm. look differently for different people. Yep. So let's, let's take an example. I guess that is one of the best ways to understand something. Mm-hmm. And uh, say I'm from India, so I'll give you an example from India. So what does uh, meeting or living up to family's expectations mean in India? It would look something like studying hard um mm-hmm. uh, con- considering your parents career choice for you for about you. your
2: mm-hmm.
9: own uh, that is changing but uh, over the last decades um yeah that has been a norm uh getting married within a certain community that is also living up to the family's expectations so uh does it conflict with of course it's going to conflict with your values or your identity or your like you've just mentioned about being in Australia and not identifying with that expectation mm. at the same time feeling that bonding feeling that pressure to do so so um how, how do we how do we meet that and yes. uh, so I have um, I can uh, talk quickly about a counseling modality I have coined it is called VAM uh, to help find solutions for your issues.
3: So So that was a clip from the new Netfa podcast about FGM. You can find out more about it at netfa.com.au and we will continue to play clips from it uh, for the next few weeks as well.
5: Earlier in the week, I had the privilege of speaking with Samantha Armstrong about her work with the Param Language School. Samantha works as a master-apprentice coordinator, which involves facilitating language lessons between elders and apprentices. The Padam Language School avoids adopting a Western approach to learning and instead reverts back to their old days where a practice of just listening to elders was used. Students learn from elders using a wide range of language from child-rearing to everyday living situations without adapting or compromising the Pudam language. Due to how endangered the language is, this method is highly recommended. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Are you able to tell us a little bit about the Puram School and the history of the Puram language?
1: Uh, well, the history of the Puram language, um, well, Pudam people originate from the south of Alice Springs, so about 110 kilometres south along the s- southern ends of the Pink River. So, Pink River being the oldest river um in the world so our language is just as old as the think river itself so um, our boundaries go from um just um, on the neighboring side of uh Hammondsburg right down to um think community. So mm-hmm. okay, um uh Puram uh, is um, a severely endangered language uh with over over 30 um, fluent speakers left in the grandparent and great-grandparent generation. So I think, unfortunately, for most of the adults and children, um, with the policies of English being the only language being used at uh, home and in school, so a lot of parents were afraid to teach their kids put on it, um, just because they were scared of losing their children, getting their children taken off them.
5: And how long has the Putum school been in operation for?
1: So the Putum school was re- originally a, um, just started off from an idea from uh, my grandmother Christabel Swan and my auntie Geraldine Swa- uh knee. Stewart's me Swan, um, they had just uh, like tossed a few ideas around um, getting the kids to reconnect and to uh, revitalise Pradham. So it started off with um, uh, immediate family members of uh, Christabel and Geraldine's and then since then it's, it's grown to include other family members like myself um being Christabel's uh eldest sister's uh, granddaughter so we've um all have different family groups that are now being involved from just that one little um idea
5: yeah amazing and I understand you have um an apprentice program um are you able to tell us a little bit about how that works and what your personal experience has been with the program
1: So the uh, Master Apprentice um, methodology that we used, um, now my cousin, Vanessa Fairley and uh, Christabel's uh, younger sister, my grandmother, Kathleen uh, Bradshaw, they had traveled over in 2019 to New York and attended a workshop on how to revitalize endangered languages. So once they realized how effective that method was in terms of revitalizing an endangered language to having second language speakers to be in first language speakers so they brought that model back into Australia and uh, I think yeah it's with us it's been a really godsend like it, for myself personally I was a passive listener not an active speaker so everything that I've kept in my head I'm now getting it out more with the help of an elder fluent speaker so they not only act as your master but they're also your mentor in keeping your language going so once you're in the master apprentice space you're in the immersion space there is to be no English to be used so it's more of um, immersing yourself in the language and not coming up for air at all, like air being the English, like in terms of metaphorically. Mm.
5: And can that be hard to navigate sometimes?
1: Uh, Yes. Uh, I'm not saying like sugarcoating. (laughs) Um, Mm. Like we've had issues, like starting off, like um, a lot of different personalities clashing. So then had to work into what was ideal for everybody to have that common goal mm-hmm. and that supportive environment where we're all learning at the same pace and not switching into English or having so much um getting so much um uh, what getting reprimanded or something from the elders
2: mm.
1: in terms of um pronunciation so I think it goes both ways like with the us apprentices listening and not writing during sessions and really looking at how words are pronounced by observing our elders when they're speaking and really taking in their words on what they're trying to teach us and then us as apprentices being committed to learn and to listen and stay focused and really take into account of everything that was happening, like, in our master-apprentice space.
5: And why is language revival so important, particularly with Puram?
1: Um, Well, for, for our case, it's very important because we only have a few elders that are still with us that are... That have been able to keep their language as first language speakers, um, with parents that really defied government policies in terms of, you know, getting your kids to be educated in, in English. So they were the ones that were like, no, our kids are put on kids. So they are learning their language and that's the only language that we're speaking in a house. We're not going to have English at all. And it all ties back to taking the language back onto country as well so you need the language for your connection to country and for your connection to kin.
5: Yeah and what are your hopes for the future with the Puram school?
1: My hope so well my aspiration is where I can be uh, as a an apprentice going from the conversational list um My fluency at the moment is conversational. So from going from conversational where I could just have a full blown conversation with an elder and not refer to any English words. So going from a minute or two to actually an hour or so. And, and and for the kids to, and adults alike to take back our language, reclaim our language back to make our language back to how it was when we had our elders and, yeah, revert back to our old ways.
5: Yeah, so amazing. And I understand that there's some hopes for a, a new building to be built to help facilitate the Puram language. Um, what are those plans?
1: Well, at the moment, we're um, fundraising to build a permanent structure out of the homelands. Um, South of Alice Springs, uh, out at um, Boomerang Bull, Homeland. Because uh, we utilize that space for our on-language uh, country um, camps during winter. So most of the time we cannot go back out on, out on country because it's hot and everything else. Because we're usually um, camping pretty rough. So... Um, that would be the most, I think, the most important thing to have out on the homeland because it'll be the hub for every um, people, their kids, like the families all coming back together, reconnecting to each other and all coming together with that one common goal of making our languages strong, not only for for the younger ones, but the ones that are coming after them and so forth and really honouring all our ancestors from the country
3: yeah
5: well it sounds like you're doing some incredible work um, working to revive Puram Um, thanks so much for taking the time to to share your stories with us and I'm sure we'll be eagerly watching along the journey of fundraising for the school Um, and we'll make sure we put the donation link in our show notes as well Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Yep.
1: Hello,
5: Bye. Bye. That was Samantha Armstrong from the Perdam School chatting with us about their language revival program. As mentioned, we will include the donation link in our show notes and on Instagram if you'd like to donate to support an incredible and important language revival project. Did you know that 3CR received its community radio licence in 1976?
3: Our application was successful because of our diverse
0: and engaged community membership. Subscribers are at the heart of our station and we really need you to be active and paid up in 2023.
5: Become a 3CR subscriber today.
4: Call 0394198377 or subscribe online
2: at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe.
10: Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID. As a keyboard
5: a
1: 3CR supporter
3: you're on 3CR Tuesday breakfast we're going to play you a song now um, this is chairlift's last music video as a band um, before they stop making music together um, this song is called polymorphing and it is from their 2017 album Moth.
10: There's something better than what you asking for, kid, kid, tonight. Something better than what you're asking for, kid, kid, tonight. Something better than what you're asking for, kid, kid, tonight. Something better than what you're asking for, kid, 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 kid. Tuck to Lucy, fancy living Sticky shifting, polymorphic Sound the guns when we're together Shake a rain stick, get the weather Take the day off, I surrender Skin for kidney.
3: So that was polymorphing by chairlift. Uh, Yu Chen Xin is an artist who was born in Shanghai in 1998 and now lives and works in Melbourne. Her practice examines personal and curious perceptions of um, everyday objects um, and the absurdities in everyday life. She works through various mediums, including hand formed objects, painting, video, ceramics, and digital works. Yuchen is joining us this morning to talk about her art and her upcoming exhibition at Footscray Community Arts called Do Your Worst. Welcome to the show, Ah, uh,
7: Thank you. Thank you
3: for having me. Of course. Um, so tell us about your art practice. Um, when did you start making art and what led you to Melbourne from Shanghai? Uh,
7: I guess I'm always always interested in making art since I was a kid and I, I was... In for high school and in that time it was really like the education in China and in Australia for the art is really different and in that time I was able to use a lot of different media I guess like the clay and yeah to actually kind of make real work so I guess in that time I started to want, uh, get more interested in the contemporary art and uh, and, I be- and then I moved to Melbourne for uni and that's where, like, I started making art, I think.
3: Amazing. So your work in general explores the curious perceptions of the world and the absurdities of everyday life. What kind of drew you to this particular thing? Mm, I think... Um, I
7: think mainly I was... Uh, self-expressive in my art and I hope to explore the idea like how can I use autobiography and to record the existence of the self and to reflect certain aspects of myself and to like record the lived experience and time and memory and collecting is a very important method of my art and uh, so at the beginning in uni, I was just I just I just realized that same same object from art supply store and like two dollar shop can they are the same but the price can be really different. So so at the beginning I just use it as a replacement for the more expensive items. And then I start to pay attention to the strangeness of these objects because sometimes they're really absurd. And yeah, and sometimes they are really absurd and they have really crazy colors. So, my, the practice, the, the, the main, the objects of my practice are mainly from secondhand shops, dollar shops, and urban environments. And I think it's during that, the cracking process, it also reflects like person psychology, personal psychology. And it's during the process that the object can not as you can yeah you can you can give another life to the object and you can be not as waste and you can just mm, uh, give an yeah it can assemble lifestyles I guess yeah
3: yeah I love the idea of you know finding something absurd and giving it a new life um, yeah I think it's important for you know us as human beings in a way to find meaning in absurdity is that sort yeah. of what your art explores in a way
7: yeah i guess so and the more i collect the objects i realize i like to transform them transform them into the anthropomorphic characters and like i love i like to give facial expressions and put eyes and mouth on them and yeah, I think a way like the monsters and, yeah, the monsters and characters, um, it's kind of absurd as well. There's something very human but very tragic about them as well. And I just like want to express the crazy side of myself through the characters.
3: Yeah, I, I really love that. Um you know, as a migrant to Australia myself, I'm always interested in art created by other migrants and other people of colour um you know, and your art, especially this exhibition, says that it explores perceptions of home um I feel that migrants have a very interesting and complex understanding of home so can you can you tell us a little bit about how you do this in your new exhibition do Do your worst,
7: yeah. Uh, I think the home idea was mainly come from the lockdown time. And it was a really difficult time for me. Because before I lived in a small apartment in city, and during the lockdown, because I don't have any studio at the moment, I just stuck in a really small living room. And because my practice is uh, mainly object-based, so it's really hard like, to fit everything in the space. And yeah, and at that time, all the shops are closed as well by just uh, randomly walking on the street and creating all the materials on the street and putting them together. So I think in a way, uh, because all the characters are put in my living room, I feel like they become become like my roommate. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they just kind of know everything about me and become a blend of memory and reality. And they know all the aspects of me and all the good things and bad things. I woke up every day and I see the in my living room, and I kind of think in that way all the the work kind of blend with the space as well. So, uh, so this this is how I want to keep explore after the lockdown. Is that how how should I like extend the work from myself to the whole space? Yeah, and that's that's why I kind of incorporate some furniture in the work and transform them into characters as
3: well. That's so great. I really love that. I think that, um, you know, there's something quite magical about everyday objects, especially yeah. when you do anthropo- and make them your own characters. And you're right. I think that it, um, you know, especially for people who are away from home and living by themselves, it creates a whole other uh, way to relate to those objects. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about the uh, launch for your exhibition. It's coming up on the 14th of February. Is that right? Yeah, so it's next
7: Tuesday. And it's opening from, uh, it's open on that day, but the launch is 6.30 from 8.30. Yeah, at
3: the night. Great. And where can our listeners find out um, more about your work or follow you if they're interested in your work? Uh, they can
7: find me on Instagram and just they can just search my name. You can see and yeah, they will
3: find me. Amazing. We will also um, put a link to the exhibition in our show notes later today. Um, tickets are free, um, but you do need to book them. So um, for all our listeners yeah. who are interested in attending the launch or checking out the exhibition, it's at Footscray Community Arts. Um, is there anything you want to tell your listeners about the show? Mm. Uh,
7: I think that will be all.
3: Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Yuchen. That was, um, a really interesting conversation and best of luck for the opening. Thank you so
7: much. Thank you for having me and giving me the opportunity to promote the show and talk about my practice. Thank you.
3: So that was artist, uh, Yuchen Shin talking to us about her art practice. um, And her upcoming show, which opens on the 14th of February, we will link to um, the ticket link in our show notes later today. We'll also share some stuff on our Instagram, so make sure you're following 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. And we'll be right back after this.
8: St Kilda Festival is back in 2023 with two days of summer fun, Saturday 18th and Sunday 19th of February. Saturday kicks off with a celebration of First People's artists, including Christine Anu, Jem Cassadaly, Dean Brady and more. On Sunday, the party takes to the St Kilda streets with Hoodoo gurus, Yothu Yindi, Confidence Man and heaps more. Free and all ages, see the program at stkildafestival.com.au. St Kilda Festival is a 3CR supporter.
4: Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains. And the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunna and Bidwell and the Nara people, and that sovereignty was never ceded.
1: A 3CR supporter.
9: The Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates, and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning. Diversity and inclusion, and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. The Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter.
5: Just a friendly Friendly reminder, we have a subscriber drive coming up. So if you've been thinking about it, we'd love for you to subscribe to 3CR. It is $40 for pensioners or concessions and $80 for fully waged. Uh, Go to the website and nominate Tuesday Breakfast. So that is 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe.
3: Amazing. So that brings us to the end of our show this morning. We did cover a lot of ground on today's show We started off at 7.15 listening to a clip. Um, Dr. Sue Warram, one of the founding members of ICANN, speaking at the Are We Sleepwalking Interwar webinar. Um, We will link to the full webinar webinar in our show notes later today. Uh, We played that clip right before we spoke with Elise Elise West from um, MAPW Um, Elise spoke to us about what's coming up for the organization in 2023, in particular the 20th anniversary of the Iraq invasion, the AUKUS submarine report, and Australia's military emissions. We then listened to a clip from the new Netfar podcast about FGMC. Um, As always, we will link to that in our show notes as well and continue to play clips um, in the next few weeks. We
5: also um, spoke with Smith Armstrong about her work with the Puram Language School and uh, what they're doing to revive the Puram language.
3: And we ended by speaking with artist Yuchin Shin uh, about her new exhibition opening at Footscray Community Arts on the 14th of February called Do Your Worst. Um, it's a really interesting examination of the mundane and everyday. Um, Through her eyes as a Chinese migrant. So, we'd definitely encourage uh, all our listeners to check that out and get a ticket. Um, You can follow Yuchen on Instagram as well at Allison underscore XIII. So, that brings us to the end of our show. Um, As always, keep it locked to 3CR. And up next, we have Accent of Women.
5: Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends At Living Coco for their support of the programme Living Coco puts community first By respecting food sovereignty Based in Braybrook They create bean-to-bar chocolates Cacao tea Intentional drinking cacao And cacao mass in bulk a zero waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram.
0: 3CR would like to thank our sponsors Earth Greetings cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au
1: 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the Courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.